Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Nefarious. So my name is Bailey Butchie and I created this podcast as part of my final thesis project for my undergraduate degree program here at Arizona State University. So before we get started, I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about me and what it is I'm hoping to achieve with this project. So I'm a double major in criminology and criminal justice and forensic psychology and I am currently in my last semester wrapping up my degrees. I have always been a huge fan of true crime podcasts myself, so I wanted to take this opportunity to create my own while also fulfilling my final thesis project. So this podcast is a variation of a true crime podcast where rather than simply telling you guys about cases, we will be taking more of a case study approach and using the cases to help explain various topics that I've covered during my time at ASU. I'm really excited about this project and I hope that you guys stick with me for this adventure. And I guess with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our first case. So today's episode will be covering the crimes of Richard Ramirez, who is also known as the Night Stalker, and examining some of the criminological theories that could be used to help explain his crimes and his actions. So to start out, we'll get some background information on Richard Ramirez's early life and how it was he became to be who we all know him to be. Most of this information comes from a book titled The Night Stalker, The Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez by Philip Carlo. So Richard Ramirez was born on February 28, 1960, in El Paso, Texas, to his Mexican immigrant parents, Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. Richard was the youngest of five siblings, and he grew up in a very strict Catholic household. It was also noted that his father was physically abusive, specifically toward Richard. It was never noted if it was towards the other siblings as well, but to Richard, his father was physically abusive. So what many people deem to be the origin of Ramirez's darker personality actually occurred at the age of 12 when he began hanging out with his older cousin, Miguel. Miguel was a Vietnam War veteran, and he would spend his time with Richard retelling war stories and essentially just glorifying the feeling of killing other people for a living. Gruesome, I know. Miguel would show pictures of himself sexually assaulting a Vietnam woman, as well as pictures of himself killing and then decapitating her. These stories and pictures ended up influencing Richard in two ways. So the first was that Richard found these pictures to be sexually arousing. Both these pictures specifically and then the idea of just violence in general, Richard found it to be sexually arousing. The second way that these stories and pictures influenced Richard was that it made him begin to believe in Satan. He believed that God would look down on him for his thoughts and his actions, but he thought that Satan would approve, and therefore Satan might be a better belief for his lifestyle. And then, as if this could possibly not get any worse, Richard witnessed Miguel shoot and kill his wife at just the age of 12 years old. So after witnessing such a traumatic event at such a young age, it's no surprise that Richard became more isolated and more reserved than he had been beforehand. He began to care a lot less about school, and he cared more about drugs and petty crime and just not the best lifestyle choices. In order to kind of escape this path that he found himself to be going down, Richard ended up going to visit his brother in Los Angeles. But rather than coping like he hoped he would, he ended up just experiencing another sexual awakening. As Richard recounted, Los Angeles is full of sex appeal. On every single corner of the city, there were prostitutes and sex shops. And since Richard looked older than his actual age of just 12 years old, Richard was granted access to these shops and was allowed to explore these things that no 12-year-old should be exploring. Upon returning from Los Angeles, Richard actually ended up dropping out of school completely. And in his free time, he now burglarized homes. He moved on to harder drugs than just marijuana. And he found a love for hunting and gutting animals. 
From this point on, Richard became very estranged from his family and entrenched in the life of crime. He was slowly working his way up from petty crimes and smoking marijuana to committing the heinous acts that many people know him for today. So the first couple instances of Richard Ramirez's crime spree, much of this information comes from the book titled Serial Killers and Psychopaths by Charlotte Greek and John Marlowe. So on June 28th, 1984, at just the age of 24, Richard Ramirez killed his first victim, 79-year-old Jenny Vincau. So Vincau was sleeping when Ramirez broke into her home, sexually assaulted her, and stabbed her to death and stole her jewelry. Yet it wasn't until nearly a year later, on March 17, 1985, when Richard Ramirez began to terrorize the city of Los Angeles with his deadly crime spree when he attacked Maria Hernandez and killed both Dale Okazaki and Sai Leon Yu. While Hernandez was entering her apartment, Ramirez came up behind her and attacked her. He also shot at her, but the bullet was deflected by her keys and only knocked her down. Hernandez made a very smart move and ended up playing dead while Ramirez checked on her, and so once he was satisfied that she was dead, he proceeded to enter the apartment where he shot and killed Okazaki, leaving Hernandez to actually survive the attack. However, later that same evening, Ramirez came upon Yu in a car park in Monterey Park, where he dragged her from her car and shot her multiple times. Yu ended up dying in the hospital the following day. Ten days later, on March 27, 1985, Ramirez attacked and killed married couple Vincent and Maxine Zazara, breaking into their home and killing them in their sleep. This particular murder became quite inspiring for Richard Ramirez, as you could see in his later crimes, as many of the other victims ended up being couples following this attack. So six weeks later, on May 14, 1985, Ramirez attacked yet another couple, William Doy and his wife. Ramirez broke into the couple's home and shot William in the head while he proceeded to sexually assault his wife. Although he was shot, William did still manage to make it to the phone and call the authorities before he died, which is an action that probably saved his wife's life as it caused Ramirez to flee the scene in order to not get caught by the authorities. Two weeks after this incident, on May 29, 1985, Ramirez attacked Mabel Bell and Florence Lane, two elderly sisters in their 80s who lived together. He broke into their home and beat both of them with a hammer and then proceeded to draw pentagrams on Bell's body as well as across the walls and other parts of the apartment. Both sisters were discovered the following day, and Bell had unfortunately died from the attack, but Lane had actually survived her injuries. The information for the remaining crimes in Richard Ramirez's crime spree come from an article written in Crime Magazine titled Night Stalker by David Lohr. A little over a month later, on July 2, 1985, Ramirez broke into the home of Mary Louise Cannon, where he beat her within an inch of her life, then slit her throat, leaving her for dead as he burglarized her home. Five days later, on July 7, 1985, Ramirez broke into the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, where he bludgeoned her to death and then also proceeded to burglarize her home. So in the final month of his killing spree, Ramirez ended up killing four people, with three of them occurring in the same night. So nearly two weeks after Nelson's murder, on July 20th, 1985, Ramirez broke into the home of married couple Maxon and Leela Needing, where he shot both of them in the head and then proceeded to mutilate their bodies. That same night, Ramirez broke into yet another home, where he shot Changaran Kovananth in the head, killing him. Ramirez also beat and raped Kovananth's wife, sodomized his eight-year-old son, and then stole a variety of jewelry and valuables from the home. Ramirez's final known murder before he was caught by authorities occurred on August 17, 1985, when Ramirez broke into the home of Ilias and Sakina Abawath and attacked both of them, killing Ilias and sexually assaulting his wife, Sakina. So at this point in the investigation, the Los Angeles Police Department was scrambling. They had a serial killer on the loose, they had absolutely no leads of who it could possibly be, and the public was absolutely terrified. 
But luckily for them, Ramirez was beginning to become careless with his crimes. As depicted in the timeline of events published by Carrie Vanderborg of the International Business Times, following his attack on the Aboath household, Ramirez drove 50 miles outside of Los Angeles to Mission Viejo, where he broke into the home of Bill Carnes and Inez Erickson. After breaking into the home, he shot Carnes and sexually assaulted Erickson while forcing her to declare his devotion to Satan. He left both Carnes and Erickson tied up but alive and fled the scene. Erickson was luckily able to make her way to a window where she was able to get the license plate number for the car Ramirez was driving. That, along with the physical description she was able to provide officers with, the Los Angeles Police Department finally had a solid lead for the first time in their investigation. So as detailed in the article written by David Lohr, Ramirez was actually apprehended by civilians before he was arrested by the police. So when authorities entered the plate number that Erickson had provided them, they discovered that the car had been reported stolen. Two days later, authorities found the car abandoned on the side of the road. And while police and forensic specialists looked over the car, they found a fingerprint on the rearview mirror. After running that fingerprint through their databases, they got a hit, which, as we all know, was Richard Ramirez. So on August 30th, 1985, an all-point bulletin was issued for Ramirez's arrest, and his face was plastered across TV and newspapers throughout the city. So this is where the civilians come in. So after seeing these posts and this bulletin, they noticed and recognized Ramirez, and they decided to take it into their own hands to restrain him and hold him until police arrived. If this doesn't show you just how sick of these crimes and how terrified the civilians of the city were, I don't really know what does. But police did shortly arrive thereafter and arrested Richard Ramirez, finally catching the night stalker that had terrorized the city of Los Angeles. So now moving into the trial of Richard Ramirez. Most of this information comes from the Netflix series, The Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, which if you have not yet seen, I highly recommend checking out after finishing this podcast. It details all of Richard Ramirez's crimes, gives plenty of interviews with real life survivors, as well as some of the Los Angeles Police Department that was on the case. Super interesting, tons of cool facts. Um, But when looking at the trial specifically, it showed photographs and audio snippets of testimony And it also just kind of gave you a glimpse of what it was like in the courtroom during the Ramirez trial. And honestly, just showed you how purely evil Richard Ramirez truly was. So on October 24th, 1985, during his arraignment hearing, Richard Ramirez pleaded not guilty to the 43 charges that he was facing. Most notably from this hearing, however, was that Richard Ramirez showcased to the courtroom a pentagram that he had drawn on his left palm. And while being escorted, he announced, Hail Satan. On January 31st, 1989, over three years after his crimes and after many legal delays, Ramirez's trial finally began. The prosecution had over 140 witnesses, and there was even testimony from many of the survivors of Ramirez's numerous attacks. One of the survivors recounted that while she was begging for the safety of her children, she told Ramirez that she swore to God she would not scream, to which Ramirez responded, swear on Satan, you won't scream. Once again, just going to show his allegiance to and worship of the devil. On October 20th, 1989, Ramirez was found guilty on 43 counts, and on November 7th, 1989, he was sentenced to death by the gas chamber. Under California law, his death sentence was automatically appealed to the state Supreme Court. However, the appeal was almost immediately denied, and Ramirez was sent to San Quentin State Prison, where he awaited his death. On June 7th, 2013, in a heavily guarded hospital room, Richard Ramirez died due to complications as a result of being diagnosed with cancer, never actually meeting his appointed fate in the gas chamber. So now that we have a little bit of background information on Ramirez's childhood, as well as the details of his crime, we'll look more into some of the criminological theories that could be used 
to explain the motive or the reasoning behind his actions. Before jumping in, it is important to note that there is no one theory that can explain why a criminal did what they did and what led them to making that decision of how to live their life, but rather aspects of a variety of theories that provide some probable explanations. So in the case of Richard Ramirez, there are four theories worth mentioning. Spiritualism, Hershey's self-control theory, Hershey's social bonds theory, and Aker's social learning theory. So John Haidt and Johannes Wielden, in their book, Introducing Criminological Thinking, discuss spiritualism, criminology, and explain how it is one of the oldest theories in the books. Under this theory, criminal behavior is explained by criminals being under the influence of demonic possession and stating that criminals were in fact inhuman beings due to this possession. Although this is rather outdated and is not really mentioned in much of the academic literature today, The basic notion still rings true in modern society. Many people believe that serial killers and murderers are monsters, with the only explanation for their actions being that of pure evil, which kind of relates to the basis for spiritualism criminology. It is no debate that Ramirez is pure evil. Through the heinous nature of his crimes, just the sheer amount of victims that he killed and those that he attacked, it's quite obvious that he was evil. But what really connects him to this spiritualism theory is is his heavy belief in Satanism. So although Ramirez did not merit the traditional excuse of the devil made me do it, which is what was mostly seen in the original times of spiritualism, he was heavily influenced by satanic teaching and he did use these teachings to justify his crimes. Some clear examples of this were the pentagrams that he drew at various crime scenes as well as on his palm at the arraignment hearing, the multiple times that he had his victims swear on Satan, and then he himself yelling, Hail Satan, in the courtroom, all of which show that he had a clear allegiance to the devil himself. The second theory we'll be talking about is Travis Hershey's self-control theory. Most of this information comes from Ronald Aker's article, Self-Control as a General Theory of Crime. So in order to understand Hershey's theory, it's important to understand that Hershey himself viewed crime and criminal behavior as a means to accomplish short-term gratification. He also believed that people who participate in crime typically partake in analogous behavior, such as drinking, doing drugs, having irresponsible sexual relations, that kind of thing. Hershey's theory presents the idea that individuals with lower levels of self-control will be more likely to engage in such criminal and analogous behavior at some point during their lifetime. He also attributes the causes of these low levels of self-control to ineffective or incomplete socialization and oftentimes poor parenting. So in the most basic terms, self-control theory states that people commit crimes when they are unable to resist the urge to fulfill their desires to participate in deviant behavior. So when looking at how this applies to Richard Ramirez and his crimes, it clearly shows in his childhood and his lack of relationships. So as we know and as we mentioned, Richard Ramirez did not have the best relationship with his parents or his family in general. Ramirez was often overshadowed by his older siblings, and, and as we know, his father was physically abusive towards him. Having a stable childhood and creating these kind of good relationships is crucial to learning right from wrong and developing some level of self-control, which as we can see, Richard Ramirez was clearly lacking. Ramirez also participated in multiple analogous behaviors during his childhood. When he was just 10 years old, Ramirez began smoking weed, and then when he was 16 years old, he moved on to experimenting with harder drugs. Ramirez also started having deviant sexual fantasies at the age of 12 and actual sexual intercourse at the age of 15. And when you sit back and think about it, these are relatively young ages to be engaging in such behavior, especially when compared to the average, like 12 years old, 10 years old, 
that's crazy. Most kids are still in elementary school. So so the fact that he was engaging in these deviant behaviors just kind of goes to show that he was on the wrong pathway from the beginning. It's also mentioned that participation in such behavior was looked as a gateway into more serious deviance, which, as we can see, exemplified in Ramirez's later criminal behavior and the escalation of his behavior throughout the years. Richard Ramirez's crimes themselves also tended to lack self-control. So as explained by staff Dimitriopoulos in his a article on Ramirez, Ramirez would be what we would classify as a thrill killer. So a thrill killer typically has no specific pattern or victim type of their crimes. Most of their crimes are done in the moment, and they enjoy the adrenaline rush that comes with these in-the-moment decisions. For example, with Richard Ramirez, when he was breaking into someone's home, he never knew what or who he would be faced with, but rather than creating a plan or having some semblance of what to do, he just often handled the situation on the spot and decided to go with what he felt was right at that time. This unorganized behavior is often a tendency of people with less self-control because they simply act on their urges and their desires, and they never really stop and consider the possible repercussions of their actions. They're just so overtaken by what they want in that moment that they're not really thinking long-term. So the third theory that we'll be talking about is Hershey's social bonds theory. So in a journal article, The Function of the Social Bond by James Chris, he provides a detailed explanation for each aspect of this theory. So the basis of this theory includes the four social bonds themselves, which are attachment, commitment, involvement, and belief. So attachment is the emotional closeness to others. Commitment is weighing the cost of deviant behavior in terms of how it will affect your future goals. Involvement is the time spent participating in conventional activities. And then belief is the personal attitudes towards the moral validity of the law and the ideas in support of social norms. So with this in mind, Hershey asserts that crime or deviant behavior results from the weakening or breakening of an individual's social bonds. The idea is that the more ties a person has to society, then the more control that society has over their actions. So when more ties are present, then that person is more likely to conform to societal norms and less likely to involve themselves in deviant behavior that falls outside of those societal norms. So when looking at how this applies to Richard Ramirez, it can easily be argued that Ramirez lacks all bonds at one point or another, either during his childhood or during the times when he was actually committing these crimes. So when looking at attachment, it's, as we've said time and time again, it is clear that Richard never really had a good relationship, especially with his father due to the abuse that he was experiencing. And then when looking at his relationship with his siblings, Ramirez was close to his siblings when he was younger, but as they were all older than him, they eventually grew up and moved out, leaving him alone. One thing that I did notice in my research as well was that it was never mentioned that Richard had a best friend or any sort of friend group that he would hang out with on the weekends or at school or anything like that. It was always noted that he was rather isolated and would tend to spend time alone. And so in general, he was just kind of lacking those conventional relationships that most kids have. In terms of commitment, commitment usually refers to looking at the goals someone has for their future and mainly their educational or career-based In simple terms, Richard had none. When he was younger, Richard wanted to do well in school, but then when he got older and eventually dropped out, it was clear that that was no longer a priority to him. With this in mind, Richard really had no real career aspiration. There was nothing he wanted to do after graduating that would require him to finish school, and there was nothing that he wanted to do instead of school after he dropped out. So in terms of weighing the costs and benefits of crime and how it would affect his future, Ramirez essentially had nothing to lose. He had no goals set in the first place, so there was nothing for him to possibly mess up by being caught doing his crimes. 
In terms of involvement, Richard did play football when he was younger, but due to medical reasons, he was no longer allowed to play, and therefore his coach ended up kicking him off the team. Other than that, nothing really interested Richard. As we know, after witnessing his cousin murder his wife, Richard tended to lose all interest in any sort of hobbies or normal activities and tended to turn towards more unconventional means of fulfilling his time. The social bond that most applies to Richard, and we have talked about time and time again, is going to be that of belief. So from a relatively young age, Richard had made it known that he would not conform to societal norms and what was deemed acceptable. He just kind of had his own idea of what was right and wrong and lived by his own moral compass. Mainly, this relates to his belief in Satanism. Satanism, as we all know, is largely frowned upon regardless of cultural or social norms, just because it's kind of one of those universal notions of evil that most everyone understands is just wrong. Like, there's nothing more to it. As we mentioned earlier, Richard chose to believe in Satanism because he knew that God would not approve of his thoughts and his actions, and therefore believed Satan may be a better guide for the path that he found himself to be on. The fourth and final theory that we will be covering is Aker's social learning theory, and most of this information comes from Ronald Aker himself in his book Criminological Theories, Introduction, and Evaluation. So this theory is composed of four main parts, differential association, definitions, imitation, and differential reinforcement. Differential association is actually a theory within itself, and it is explained in the most basic terms as criminal behavior being something that is learned through those who you associate with in your everyday life. The more academic explanation of differential association is that it is criminal behavior is learned through the interaction within small intimate groups through the means of various motives and techniques. The direction of such behavior is influenced by these motives, which can be deemed as favorable or unfavorable to the law. But when considering deviance and criminal behavior, it's usually going to be unfavorable. And then the process of learning deviant behavior through differential association is much like any other learning method, and it may vary in frequency, duration, priority, and intensity. The definitions aspect of Aker's social learning theory is the individual's own attitudes or meanings that they attach to a given behavior. These attitudes and meanings are used to categorize behavior as right or wrong, good or bad, justified, unjustified. You kind of get the picture. And then the greater extent to which an individual believes a certain behavior to be negative the less likely they are to engage in such behavior. The imitation aspect is quite simple and is pretty much exactly as it sounds, and it's the engagement in behavior after observing someone else perform that same behavior. The final part, differential reinforcement, is the balance of rewards and punishments in relation to consequences of an individual's behavior. So committing a crime depends on the potential rewards and punishments that could result from the commission of said crime. So usually when a criminal decides to commit a crime, they foresee the rewards of that crime outweighing the possible punishment of that crime. So when applying social learning theory to Richard Ramirez and his background and his crimes, most of this falls heavily on his relationship with Miguel. So as we mentioned before, Miguel essentially was glorifying violence through these stories and pictures that he was telling Richard and showing Richard. And he also killed his wife right in front of Ramirez, exposing him to a level of violence that not most 12-year-olds are going to be exposed to and what definitely would leave an impact on him. It's kind of obvious that Miguel did not hold societally deemed normal conceptions of violence and death. His actions and his stories are things that the normal public would find appalling and largely disagree with. However, Richard did not react the same way. Since these stories and these pictures and experiences were coming from someone that Richard looked up to, it ended up laying the foundation for who he wanted to become as a man. 
So in hearing these stories, Richard began to normalize these displays of violence, and rather than being repulsed by Miguel's actions, Richard ended up favoring them, and he began to imitate such behavior. Such imitation can be seen in some of his sexual fantasies, as well as some of the same themes being later demonstrated in his crimes. So although these theories may lend some explanation as to why Ramirez did what he did, there is no way to prove that these are in fact the truth. Criminological theories lend an academic perspective to crime and criminal acts, but they are not a tell-all. There is such a high degree of influence from multiple factors of a person's life that there is simply no way to pinpoint the sole reasoning behind a person's actions, which is part of the reason that this is such an interesting conversation and why people are so fascinated by by serial killers and criminals and just different aspects of true crime. Probably why you're listening to this podcast right now. With that being said, serial killers have been the central focus of such conversations due to the anomaly that they are when looking at traditional societal customs and the value of a human life. The complete disregard that they have for the human life, as well as the heinous nature of their crimes, is what makes them such an interesting subject to study. And Richard Ramirez is no different. Well, guys, that wraps up the very first episode of Nefarious. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this information as much as you possibly could for a topic like this. I know it was kind of gruesome, but hopefully you learned something new. Hopefully you never knew about the theories and this was something new and enjoyable for you. I also have some great things in store for future episodes and I hope you decide to tune back in. So with that being said, we'll see you next time.